In this episode of Zero to One Million, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with David Cancel. David Cancel is the CEO of Drift, which is a tool that pretty much every sales team uses today. And what's amazing about Drift's story is how much they incorporated branding and storytelling and really educating the market about how a live chat tool can be repositioned for sales teams to help close more deals faster which increased the total addressable market and the rest is history. Now they're a ginormous company on their way to an IPO. So learned a lot in this one, really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you do too. All right, with me in the house, we got DC, CEO and co-founder of Drip. Thanks for having Thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for, joining. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. Hey, so I've been a Drip user since 2013. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other users that have been customers for that long? <laughs> no, you will be the only one then. I'm talking about the the Drip.com, like car drifting. Car, website. car, yeah, because we didn't exist. We existed in 2015. Yeah. You've what been drifting cars that long. Yeah, what did you pay for the domain, if I can ask, Drip.com? $100,000, man. Nice. Believe it? Uh, we originally were called, sorry to interrupt, Drift with two T's for the first year, um, drift.com two T's because I was too cheap to pay the hundred grand for the domain. And then uh, I had to keep buying domains, drift with three T's, drift with two F's is three F's because no one could spell it right because the F's and the T's look look the same when they type. So I had every misspelling ever. Then I finally gave up and I was like, I got to pony up. Yeah. Was, Was the drift community upset that you took that away from them? Uh, did, uh, not that we heard of. It was uh, interesting. The guy, I bought it through, through a third party. Then it turned out the guy lived uh, like one state away. And he was a drift car en- enthusiast. We're in Massachusetts and Boston. He's in New Hampshire. He was close. He's an engineer that was retiring and uh, from Oracle. And we bought it from him. It's crazy. That's awesome. So David, you're a, a serial entrepreneur. You started multiple companies and for I guess what I'd love to kind of cover in in this podcast is, you know, you started Drift is what your fifth company. Fifth company I started. Uh, I I was part of three other startups before this. So when you start companies, do you mm-hmm. have some sort of thesis or framework that you start off with? And the reason I ask that is, live chat was not new. I used Snap Engage in 2010. I used um, Olark if you remember them. Support tools. Mm-hmm. And requests would come into my sales team and they would be like, hey, we don't want to deal with this. We had a support line. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you essentially took that tool and applied it to sales teams. And I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, it seems like you spotted a trend in buyer behavior before everybody else and built a product around that. Yeah, yeah. I consider that an entrepreneurial superpower. Um, (laughs) Was that kind of the thesis of the business? Like, hey, this is where I think live chat is going and communications is going. Yeah, so I will say, I will back up and say throughout my entire career that the first half of it, I did a traditional way entrepreneurs do, which is like to think, come up with some idea and then try to bring it to market, then try to convince the world that they should care about it. But that way is the wrong way to do it because that is about personally personal manifestation, that's about your idea, that's about your ego, that's all that. When I started Drift, I had gone all the way in the other end and said, I don't care about my ideas. Ideas are worthless. I don't care about that. It's not about me. It's more about like, do we spot some, some something happening in the world outside? So I call them external trends happening. 
three spot one, two of those things happening, and those things causing massive behavior change because behavior change is the thing that's impossible, right? Us entrepreneurs always want to convince people to change their behavior, which is fundamentally impossible. And I said, okay, there are some happening. Then the trick is, can we use those behavior changes outside of our market to resegment a market that we know? And in the case of us, we came from marketing sales world. I had used Snap Engage in 2009. I had used Zolark. I'd used all those things. Many people had tried to use live chat for sales uh, use case, but it never worked for, for two reasons, I believe. One, the world wasn't ready for it because it was still in 2009. Not everybody that you know was texting and you know using WhatsApp and using Slack and using all this stuff. So messaging wasn't normal. It was normal to some of us geeks, right? And so that's why it was relegated to support. And then the other reason was that live chat was never built with a sales use case, so couldn't deal with the hard problems of qualification, routing, making sure that that sales rep never gets a support lead. Because as you know, support person gets a, a uh, I mean, a salesperson gets a support lead. That's the last time they're going to use the tool, right? As soon as they get that, it's noise. They're going to put it to the side. They're not going to use it anymore. And yeah. so we had to solve that problem, technically the routing and qualification problem. And we had to wait for the world to be ready. And in 2015, when we started the company, I had been looking at those changes and saying, okay, now everyone from my, your grandparents to your kids to everyone in between is using messaging over email, over phone calls, over everything else. So now it's going to become possible, we thought, to use it in a sales use case. And no one had ever commercially used it that way. That's awesome. And one of my favorite quotes in business, and I think you touched on it, is one of the hardest things to do is change consumer habits. Oh, yeah. Like you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing, educating. Not going to happen. And then another thing in, that you said I, I really like, which is, I think, a lot of wisdom right there, and I'd love your opinion on this, is just market timing. You know, there's been a lot of products that have come out too early, too late. Mm -hmm. um, how did you like know this was like the right time for Drift mm -hmm. to enter the market as you know, a live communication tool for sales reps? Sure, sure. And I, I'd say on the first point, like totally right that you're, I believe 100% you're not going to change anyone's behavior. People will change their behavior because of an external change. Like in the case of right now, this pandemic, we've all been forced to change or because of a selfish reason. Those are the two reasons, right? Otherwise, you're not going to force anyone to, to make a change in a free world. And then so like, so for us, you know, for me, I look at a time like now and I talk to entrepreneurs and business people and they say like, what do you think in this pandemic, COVID, business, this? I'm like, this is the best time to be an entrepreneur ever, right? Because the people who are not really committed to it get washed out. And more importantly, the massive behavior change that has happened globally creates opportunity for all of us. We can't even dream of what they are, but there's a whole slew of new tools, new services, new looks that we have to take because everyone around the world has fundamentally changed their behavior overnight. Boom. No one could do that, right? And so super important. But to answer your second question on Drift specifically, I had really been looking at the trends in messaging for a long time and looking at the growth of Skype and then WhatsApp and then all these inflection points, large, largely driven because of this, because of the iPhone and the, and the Android phone really drove messaging adoption. And I, I started to feel that there was a tipping point, but we didn't know if it was true, like when it was going to happen. When we started the company, we said, we think this is true. Uh, it will probably take the next five years to really prove if it, isn't, if it is and if it isn't. And here's some evidence for us. We had in the first deck that we ever created internally, we said, like, if these companies, like, you, know, you can name the big companies, start to move into messaging, 
that's how you know we'll have validated that the market is ready because they will move only when the market is ready. And so, and we have seen all that come to pass. We've seen us create a conversational marketing category and being one of one of one to now hundreds of companies call themselves con conversational marketing, conversational intelligence, conversational whatever, but that wasn't a term uh, in 2017 when we coined that. Yeah, you, your guys' marketing is is legendary in terms of creating the category. You branded an enemy, which I believe was uh, no forms. No forms, yeah. Uh, walk me through like the process of that because, sure. and correct me if I'm wrong here, but at times it seems like Drift is more of a marketing, uh, sales positioning uh, company rather than a product company. The product's amazing, don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying, sure. like you, you made people look at a tool that was so common before, yeah. and say, "Hey, it should be used for this use case for these reasons, based on these changes in the market." Yeah. Um, how much is in the DNA of of Drift in terms you nailed, of you market? nailed it. You you have a good uh, good way of looking at it. I'd say it's totally true, and I'm on exactly how we built the company because of another external another trend that we had been looking at, and that trend being that I thought we were entering this third wave of. SaaS or this third third part of the market where we went from like first parts about invention, which is the beginning of in SaaS specifically for us. The second was about like, um, was we had just come out of it. It's about like, how do you build the most efficient model? And that was like, you learned all about go to mar um, LTV to CAC and all these ratios and vertical SaaS, horizontal SaaS and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And then we were entering when we started drift the third wave, which I call the Procter & Gamble wave, which is like technology is no longer a barrier you know, uh, models, go-to-market models are no longer a barrier. Everyone knows how to do those. And so the last thing that you have is your brand. And so like Procter & Gamble, who can sell Tide soap for 20 cents more than that soap, how do you build this, this customer loyalty, this affinity for your brand? And so we started from day one. I didn't know anything about building brands. You know, I was an engineer and an and entrepreneur. And so I really studied on like, and really executed at Drift of like, how do we create I don't want to be a software brand. I don't want to be a Boston brand or a San Francisco brand. I don't want to be tech. I don't want to be any of those things. I want to build a global brand. And then in that serves a certain type of customer and we would deliver different products and services and offerings to that customer base over time with this live chat being the first one of those. And so that was deliberate from day one. We didn't know if we could execute on or, or not, but like we started building that brand and you're right. Like, you know, the software that we deliver and the offerings are, amazing but it's really the proximity to the customer and the brand and that promise that we make is the most important thing that we're trying to do and i would say that's the most important anything any entrepreneur can do because we believe that all the power is moved to the buyer because like there's mass commoditization in every single market and you see that in all your direct to consumer kind of uh products and services you see that in SaaS certainly and you see that in almost every market today and that trend is going to continue yeah i completely agree with that just the more you reduce friction in the buying process exactly people don't want to fill out a form get ebook like a minute later they want to talk <laughs> to sales reps like immediately um i guess well, we next... storytelling heavily sorry to interrupt you but like because you made me just think of it there of just like we use storytelling a lot and we kept kept pulling ourselves even though we were insiders in this market kept pulling ourselves outside the market and reducing things down to the most simplistic terms to to try to like test like do they make sense anymore and like when we did that even though we had built all the software in the past, we said like, what? You like go to a website, you fill out a form, you get a bunch of emails, like three weeks later, someone wants to get you on the phone. You don't want to get on the phone. They want to sell. Like the whole, if you reduce it to the most basic thing and tried to explain it to your like a friend, you'd be like, that's the most insane process that yeah. doesn't make any sense. That's how we try to do everything. And then we build stories around that. 
Yeah. Did storytelling reduce your customer acquisition costs? Because obviously that broadcast it out to the world. Mm-hmm. You just need a good story. You can pay like a fancy PR firm, but that usually doesn't work out. <laughs> we have not had any fancy PR firms. Uh, the uh, It did reduce our customer acquisition costs greatly. I mean, we built the company on it. But I think the more important part than reducing the customer acquisition cost was it ex- expanded greatly the size of the market. So the TAM that we saw in the market, if we had just looked at the TAM of the subslice of live chat users, you know, in the world that we're mostly using in a support use case, and then took a subslice of that to be the ones who were interested in a sales use case, this would not be, you know, we wouldn't be around, right? And so we had to greatly expand the addressable market and get all these people who had never or had used it, but like yourself failed to use it correctly, like all these people in the world interested in it. And that was the most important thing that the storytelling did for us. I didn't fail to use it correctly. The tools, Drift are just not around. And then I brought that's true, it in. That's true, you're right. Yeah, yeah. so they I, I've, been, I've been a heavy power Drift user. Just so you know, you have sales teams that literally have that tab open and they're just staring at Drift all day long. All day, oh, we hear from those people all day. Yeah, yeah great. and Amazing. I guess another question I have for you is um, initial go-to-market strategy. You talked about brand storytelling. That's going to drive a lot of inbound traffic. Was it inbound to start? Was it outbound? Was it a mixture of both? How did oh, yeah, you get your first customer? Like, what was what was kind of the, the first spark that got you guys done? Before we had the brand, before we had the storytelling, before we had the inbound, the first you know fifty customers, I would say something like that, fifty some odd customers. We got the old way, pounding the street, myself and Elias, who's my co-founder, uh, going to a bunch of, luckily for us, we knew a lot of people in SaaS and sales and marketing and so friends, and we'd go to them and, you know, friends and, and beg them to use Drift and to pay us anything because Drift basically didn't exist at that point. There was nothing. And many of them paid me, you know, whatever money that they had in their pocket, $20, $50, $100, bucks, whatever, 5 bucks, uh, And then I promised to give them Drift for forever, you know, that current, that version of it, you know, whatever they paid me, because we needed those early customers. Ooh, using us. I got a good question there. So yeah. was that a strategy initially? Because, um, you know, every initial customer that you bring on, you make them happy. Mm-hmm. They leave reviews online, people yep. read those reviews. So every customer that you discount in the early days can lead to more customers in the future. So you're discounting now for future value later. Was that kind of the initial strategy, like For build sure. a brand by giving it away, getting people super happy, collecting customer reviews? Definitely. That was the that was the secondary reason we were doing it. The first was to get just to get to prove that anyone cared about this. I made them pay me something because I, I always saw entrepreneurs this because and I I stumbled upon this in 2009 in my company Performable because there's you're always going to be like in your when you're trying to get the product market fit, you're going to be talking to all these companies or customers and they'll have meetings with you, meetings with you, meetings with you, meetings with you, and you never know, like, do they really care about this or not? And so I just get too straight to the point and say, like, give me money. Give me whatever money. And where entrepreneurs get caught up is, like, they're like, how much money? I don't want to leave money on the table. Blah, 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 blah. If the market's big enough, it doesn't matter, right? And if you can make them happy, like you said, they're going to bring you more customers in the future. Don't get caught up on that. The first thing is just, like, give me whatever you have in your, in your wallet. 20 bucks, that's fine. I'll take 25. I don't care what so you So your, your first pricing strategy was really just like... Whatever's in your... I'm not leaving without money that's in my hand. Cash. And we still have company... Uh, we have bills with company names on them and stuff like that from back then in our office here in Boston uh, on a wall somewhere. And th- those were our first customers. That's how we got the first 50. 
Then we started to build and we, they were kind of helped us design the product and beta test and all that kind of stuff. But they had skin in the game. You have to have skin in the game, especially in B2B. It's harder in B2C, but like in B2B, like if it's a real problem, they're going to give you money. Second thing we did was we were building the brand at the same time. Then we built the first two, maybe three years of drift easily, maybe even still to today, totally an inbound. We never had an outbound motion. We never sent an email. We didn't have, we didn't have BDRs. We didn't have sales reps yet at that point. And uh, it was all inbound and it was freemium. So it was like, you can only buy online and, and totally touchless. And then in the year after that is when we started to experiment with some inside sales people. And then the next year, two years was all 100% inbound, high velocity inside sales model. Again, never outbound, never whatever. It was just like, as fast as they would come in, that's, that's how we would close them using Drift, of course. Yeah, if I can ask, close. how long did it take you to get to your first million revenue? Oh, uh, I want to know the days and the hours and seconds. <laughs> I don't even remember. Like down in uh, the minute. Let's see. I should remember. This should be like memorable. Uh, I don't know. Less than a year. You're sure. just drifting. Yeah, we're just drifting. I can't remember, but less than a year, and then then it starts to really accelerate because we were we were holding. Remember that was a totally touchless model, and so we were in some ways limiting ourselves. We never went outbound. We never tried to prospect get people except for that first 50 customers, but that was us. And it was all inbound. And so like it was coming, but I didn't even realize the full demand. And then it went from like a million, then it really exploded because when we had those um, inside sales reps, because they were fulfilling it. Yeah. So another question there is um, you raised capital from day one, correct? Yeah. Yeah. How do you think that changed the dynamic of the company? I'm hearing some awesome stuff where, you know, you raise a bunch of money and then, Mm-hmm. Let's get inside sales. Let's get outside sales. Let's go up market. Let's get yeah. billboards. But it yeah. sounded like you were very methodical with let's, no methodical. let's get users. What do you have in your wallet? Even though you're funded, like, yeah. was They're that cheap. like, was that kind of like um, built into the DNA of drip? Even though you raised money from day one, it sounds like you were very frugal with how you entered the market. You validated the product. You validated customers were actually seeing value from this, and then you started to layer on the other motions to scale uh, the company. Uh, yeah, extremely cheap is how people would call, would, would, would uh, call me internally. You can ask them. Cheap ass. <laughs> uh, I would say uh, we call it frugal, but like, yeah, in some ways, so much so that in now in these years, now I'm trying to reverse some of that a little bit because, like, I was like so crazy. Like, you know, everything from. I told you we first year we had a different name because I was too cheap to buy the domain. We had raised $14 million, but I wouldn't spend a hundred K, you know, yeah. like I wouldn't, it took me a year of pain to actually, that, even after good. a year, I wouldn't spend it. You it's know. good for the company though. The company yeah. DNA. Yeah. We didn't have, uh, we worked out of free space only in the, again, we raised $14 million. I wouldn't pay for office space. We where, was, uh, where, was, where was your first office? I want to get this on record. Uh, a rock climbing gym called Brooklyn Boulders. You in, worked out of a gym for your first yeah. office? First, first six people until they threw us out of there because we were working for free, uh, you know, getting off the Wi-Fi. Six, nice. uh, six people there. Then I got my uh, one of our investors, one of the the one who had written ten million of that fourteen million dollars, to give us free office space. And then we stood there until we were twenty some odd, and they didn't have space anymore, and they threw us out. Then I finally rented uh, a just big enough space that I subleased for the cheapest space uh, possible. We outgrew that in like. And in less than six months, and then I had to fi- finally rent, you know, traditional office space. But it was just like over and over and over. I wouldn't spend any money on anything, um, nothing, nothing in there. 
So until we validated it, and even inside sales, like once we have, um, once we had premium going, and then inside sales was really going because we were getting people, uh, getting reps fully productive, meaning like hitting their full quota in 30 to 45 days. Just they come in 30 days, boom, they're already full quota attainment, right? Like they're they're like cranking, right? And so like. Um, and even then, we, I was just like so slow at hiring the next one, just like one by one by one, because I was like, oh, maybe it'll break, maybe or whatever. Finally, it was one of our investors took us on a tour, and I met with Frank Slootman, who's the uh, was the CEO of ServiceNow, is now the CEO of Snowflake, who just went public. And and Frank is like hardcore, and finally, like he did into me, and he's just like, you need to hire hundred reps. What are you doing? What are you an idiot? And it's just like, because he was looking at our productivity, and he's like, what is this? And I was just like. And I was like, oh, I don't want to spend the money. And he finally, him and uh, Frank V, Frankie V, who was the first head of sales at Salesforce, um, you know, convinced me to to finally like loosen up a little bit. It took a lot though. It took a lot to loosen up. Yeah, that's I love hearing that though. When was <laughs> um when did you raise your second round? Uh, it was almost a blur because you know we raised the first round in when we started the company that was like uh, fourteen sure. million, and then we wouldn't spend any for the first year. And I want to say a year and a half in, we had our one of one of those that uh, investors, General Catalyst came to us and wanted to preempt the Series B. And so they preempted the Series B, the, the two investors that had put in money. And we raised that Series B pretty quickly. But then I talked them into leaving some room open. And then I got Sequoia to put in a tiny amount uh, in that B. And then a year later, they preempted uh, Series C. How much cash on hand did you have when you raised your second round? And the reason I ask is, you know, when you have cash on hand, you have, let's call it, you know, I'm assuming months, years of burn, you don't need the, you don't need the capital. So you have a lot of leverage when you're speaking with investors, Um, but you also had a great product, great team, like you're hitting a trend. I would say you had almost all of it. Maybe we had like, and I'm just guessing right now, maybe we had 75% of that capital, 80% of that capital still left. Then we raised the Series B, and then we raised the C, and we still hadn't touched the B. You know, we hadn't uh, used any of the money in the B yet. And so when we raised the C. That's incredible. And who built the first version of the product? Was it you? Uh, my co-founder, Elias. Uh, I, I'm not allowed to touch code anymore. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was him and uh, a handful of engineers, a few engineers. Because in the beginning, we were... First 20 people were pretty much just all engineers, designers. We, again, we didn't have salespeople. We didn't have marketing people. We didn't have anybody on the team. Nice. And I know you have a wealth of experience building companies, but it seems like every time that I talk to an entrepreneur that started a new company, you know, there's always just mistakes that you make and just things that, you know, 2020 hindsight. Mm-hmm. If you could go back and tell yourself like, hey, DC, don't do these three things as you're building the company, um, what would they be if, if any? Yeah, I'd say, you know, having, I do have a wealth of experience, but I don't know if that's an asset uh, all the time. It is. There's some things that are unfair, like raising capital in this case was way easier, I think, than other people. Uh, But then you have all the problems, right? All the problems of like, you know too much. It's better to be like, be ignorant coming into something and like try crazy ideas versus being too methodical and too in your head. And so I'd say it's more negative than positive. Uh, being a serial kind of entrepreneur, but you are more crazy if you tend to be that serial entrepreneur person. Um, I'd say the mistakes are always this, always fall into one category: people, 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 people. Uh, you know, 
hiring correctly, keeping people on too long that that aren't right right for the company, aren't right for the stage, trying to do trying to save people, trying to you know it's all people related issues like that is the make or break. There is no there's nothing else in a company. That's what I, that's my thing thing now coming as an engineer. This product and go to market and all the stuff we we're, we're talking about and stuff, but it's all people. If you fail, it's because of people. If a competitor beats you, it's because of people. If you succeed, it's because of people. You know, if like everything comes back to people, there is no failed strategy because the people make the strategy. The people miss the co- competitor. The people didn't serve the customer. There's no we we like to we like to like abstract that out somehow. It's not our fault. Uh, like oh, we had a bad strategy. Well, you made the strategy. Like the strategy didn't come from outer space and land on your head, right? <laughs> like you made the strategy. This team made the strategy. Yeah, uh, we had bad hires. You made the bad hires. Like there's nobody else. Like you have to take the ultimate accountability and be like. Every problem comes down to everyone who's in the room. That's the only problem. So like if there's a problem, it's because of people in the room and it's a, a failure of leadership that they have that you didn't see it or you didn't wanna, you don't wanna step up and deal with the problem and resolve it right, right when your stomach told you there was a problem here. Because the stomach, your gut's always telling you, you know, you feel yeah. the spidey sense, you, see, you know the problem, but you, you get too smart, you get to experience, you rationalize things away, you convince yourself, you try to get too logical and that's when problems happen. I love that. So what keeps you like excited about Drift? Do you have any like product, you know, features coming out you can share with me and mm-hmm. no one else? Like, yeah, I mean, we're trying, to re- we're trying to reinvent the whole sales and marketing stack. So we'll go top to bottom. We're trying to build a new CRM, um, a new way to have a CRM within a company. So there's a whole bunch of stuff from a product standpoint, but really for, for us, it's like, we're trying to fix a problem that we see in the world. In some ways, we help create that problem, not at Drift, but in all the things that I've built but in the past. So we're trying to fix that wrong. And then there's a whole, there's other reasons that I'm excited about Drift. One, uh, the other one is that Elias and I believe a lot in creating role models, right? And we're both Latinx founders and there's almost no Latinx founders in the world, especially venture, venture backed. And so like, it's our duty now to like, try to be a role model for people in middle school, high school and in, in college age, and we spend a lot of time with with kids of those ages trying to give them role models because we didn't grow up with any role model. And then there's a whole bunch of philanthropic things that we're doing as a company and as personally that are important. And that's all those things together are what really make Drift exciting to me. That's awesome. And who do you look up to? You're such a mm-hmm. badass entrepreneur. You've done this <laughs> like multiple times. Like who 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 My do you daughter. look at? And you're like, hey, that guy's awesome. Or that girl's awesome. 15, who's a, a, a complete and utter beast. And I always say my daughter is like so hardcore and driven that I'm like a lazy sloth, you know, bum next to her. Uh, she, I'm not, I don't impress her. I'll tell you that for sure. So kids, uh, kids will fix that out of you. So really, she impresses me. You know, people who have really worked hard. Like my, I was raised by a single mom. My mom emigrated here. Uh, you know, like she worked seven days a week. I still look up to her. She's my role model. Right, because I've never worked a day in my life as hard as she is, uh, and, and in some ways she sacrificed her life for me and my and my brothers and sisters. And so, like, she's my role model in terms of business role models. You know, I have Charlie Munger is a big role model of mine. I talk about him a lot. I talk about people who really have stood the test of time, who really try to make things simplify things down to basically people and human decision making and stuff like that. So I have endless role models. But um, you know, because someone is good in business and because someone is good in some field doesn't make that person a good person. And so, uh, you know, th- you really have to know the person and know what's behind uh, what they're doing and how they're acting. And those are the people that I look up to and not really just business people. 
I love that. I think that kind of that probably translates in your company culture too. Mm-hmm. You hire really talented people, but every single person I've talked to that works with you at Drip loves Drip, loves the culture. Like I haven't heard like as many good things about a CEO as as you. So you're doing <laughs> an amazing job both personally and, and professionally. So well, well um, I look up to them. Everyone who comes at Drift, I always say one thing: you, they they uh, we only hire people that can teach all of us, including myself, something. Doesn't matter what they can teach us. It can be about snowboarding or surfing. I see surfing in your background there. Uh, there we go. Uh, <laughs> so surfing, whatever. Just gotta teach. We we I want to be be around curious people. I'm naturally curious. I want curious people, passionate people, and we learn from each other and we get better collectively, right? And so yeah, they're all my role models. They're amazing. And they're they're awesome. much me lots of things. Well, DC, I know we're uh, we're getting close on time here, so I just want to thank you for joining me on this podcast. Um, huge fan of Drift. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is. Um, if what's, what's people that black on know, black Yankees hat there, this is a Derek Jeter hat. I'm not a huh? Yankees fan, but I'm a Derek Jeter fan. That's what <laughs> I always say. Yeah. Are you are you a sports fan? No, no, not at all. But I grew up in New York City, so you know, I could I could see that black fitted from here. Yeah, no, Derek no, Jeter. Derek Jeter is my favorite player of all time. He's great. Yeah. Well, D- David, thanks so much for joining me. Um, if people want to learn more about you, I'm guessing they can go to drift.com and go on LinkedIn and find you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hit me up on LinkedIn, David Cancel, D Cancel on, on everything. I'm easy to find. All right, David. Good man. All right. Thank you, man.